everyone. It's Daniel Elwood, and my co-host is Robert Paul Johnson. And we are The Last Nighters. You can find us on lastnighters.com and also on the Liberty Movement's YouTube channel. We're going to be doing the month of May, all May long, The Matrix. And this is The Matrix Reloaded. And our guest is the great and wonderful and powerful Oz himself, Pat McFarlane of Liberty Weekly. He was reloading ammunition a few months ago. And so when we uh, thought of doing Matrix movies, I was like, all right, we'll do Pat for Reloaded. Also, we've talked conspiracy in the past, and we have both seen a uh, very long form presentation by a guy named Mark Passio, which talks about the Matrix uh, series and how it relates to a religion of sorts. But uh, Pat, welcome back to the show. And uh, why don't you remind everyone, as if they don't know, uh, where can they find what you do and uh, what what is it that you do? Hey, brothers, how's it, how's it going? Really glad to see you again. It's been way too long. Uh, I'm Patrick McFarlane of the Liberty Weekly Podcast. Uh, I, I'm an attorney. I'm licensed to practice in Wisconsin. I do libertarian legal theory on my website. Been doing it for a hot minute now. And uh, yeah, glad to be joining you. You can find my content as well at the libertarianinstitute.org alongside wonderful, wonderful contributors like Scott Horton, Pete Quinones, Kyle Anselone, Keith Knight, and Tommy Salmons. So Good to see you guys. I'm excited to dive into this. Right. I'm excited as well. I think that this will be a lot of fun. And I think you have brought visuals along for show and tell tonight. Hell yeah. Uh, and and uh, I, I might have forgot to tell everyone, this is episode 176 of this year's show. Go to lastnerd.com slash 176. Also, we had a little bit of pre-show bonus content, and we will do a little Kathleen Turner overdrive after this. And you can find all that on our Patreon. Go to lastnerd.com slash Patreon. Throw about five bucks our way, and we'll give you everything we've got, uh, which, you know, ain't much. But uh, you get what you pay for. So head on over to Patreon for that. Uh, Robert's adjusting his uh, his pod, it looks like. But I think he's all set. So how we normally start this off. And oh, you know what? I actually have to re-share this. Because you shared something and that screwed up what I was sharing. But now sharing is caring and it's going to be on screen in just a moment. Here we go. There it is. All right. So the Google information on The Matrix Reloaded. I think I got to adjust the size a little bit. There we go. You got you can see it all now. I think so. Yeah. Yep. All right. The Matrix Reloaded 2003 7.2 out of 10 on IMDb, 73% Rotten Tomatoes, 62% Metacritic and 86% of Google users like it. Freedom Fighters Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, Trinity, Carrie Ann Moss, and Morpheus Lawrence Fishburne continue to lead the revolt against the machine army, unleashing their arsenal of extraordinary skills and weaponry against the systemic or systematic forces of repression and exploitation. The in their systemic quest, racism. They, they almost got me there. They almost got me there. Uh, in their quest to save the human race from extinction, they gain greater insight into the construct of the Matrix and Neo's pivotal role in the fate of mankind. This came out May 16, 2003 in Australia. The directors listed here, Lana and Lily Wachowski, had a box office of $741.8 million on a budget of $150 million. This is the follow-up to the original Matrix from 1999. And this was followed by Revolutions, which they shot back-to-back. -back. So Revolutions came out, I think, five or six months later, I think in December of 2003. Uh, and this was the movie that uh, was the last one that had the original Oracle in it. And then she died, I think, of diabetes or something. Uh, so that's why in the third Matrix, we have the different Oracle. But Robert, let's go to you for your opening salvo on The Matrix Reloaded. Mm, yeah, let's reload this, biatch. Yeah, so obviously the original Matrix, if you listen to the last episode, we talked about this, one of my favorites of all time. 
and the sequels were a bit of a letdown just because we were I was you know I was looking for more kind of philosophical mind-blowing cool shit and instead I got cool action scenes some kind of confusing philosophy and more questions than answers like what how exactly does it all work they've they've destroyed Zion six times what they just build it and there's no sign of these previous rebuildings. I like the idea of the the one being like kind of the steam valve relief thing. And this, this cycle just perpetuates this eternal oppression, I guess you could call it. But, you know, just from a, a popcorn steak and potatoes perspective, which is what I bring to this podcast. I bring the everyman. You know, I'm the everyman. You elitist assholes don't understand. But from the everyman's perspective, I wanted, you know, more cool, mind-blowing kind of stuff. And I didn't quite get that. What we did get was a Superman story where in order to actually have any kind of tension, we have to focus on side characters because Neo just comes in and fixes the problem whenever he shows up. And it's okay that we focus on side characters, but we definitely spend less time. With him. I guess he's just more of a, a, a less of an interesting character at this point. Maybe we just, we just understand he's the one and what exactly does he have to do? Go to the source. What does that mean? We don't know what's, what's going to happen. Eh? We don't know, but we're going to watch Morpheus and Trinity do some really cool shit on a highway they built which is going to be sweet. It still holds up to this day. Had a lot of fun with the highway scene. Although I had an issue with the ghosts like and pumping endlessly rounds into this car and oh, never twins? hitting anybody. The I mean, Summer twins? Every, they, they must have shot a couple hundred rounds into this car at, what, 20, 30 yards at the most, and you're not hitting anybody. Every time you fire another bullet, there's less and less tension because, well, apparently they're just not gonna not gonna hit anybody. This is just kind of boring. But the they did a really good job with the the speed, and when Trinity turns around and goes head on traffic, that's fantastic. Uh, I think though that they just ramped up Neo at the end of the Matrix too fast. He just becomes Superman too quickly, and he's just almost like a boring character that. You have to throw a thousand Smiths at him in order for him to have even kind of any uh, fair fight because otherwise he just solves the problem instantly. So I probably they maybe had a little bit of bar, like you know remorse when they had to come up with these sequels because then they just got this Superman character and they're like, well, what do you do with the Superman character? He's just too strong. Oh, Focus yeah. on you know, the side characters. I thought that maybe he wasn't powerful enough based on where they left him at the end of the original where he's just like barely paying attention and fighting off all these agents and, and all that in this one, it's, it's still like he can handle them, but he's not doing it lackadaisically. Like it, like it takes some effort. And so they sort of hand wave it away with him saying upgrades or whatever, but it didn't seem like he was as overpowered as I thought he should have been how they ramped him up at the end. But it sounds like you, you thought he was still a little overpowered. Well, he is in terms of fighting one agent, right? Like he fights, he has to fight. You have to throw a whole room of guys at him. Yeah. Uh, the, the Merovingian has a room like, of like your, your typical Saturday Rams. 
like superhero characters. Exactly. They have to throw a thousand Smiths at him and then he can, you know, it's an actual fair fight. If it's just one-on-one, yeah, he just blows up a Smith. I mean, who cares? They're, they're nothing to him at this point. But yeah, you're right. It, there wasn't a scene where he's just like one-handing on people because yeah. he's got to fight 20 of them. But, right. you know. And there, there was a little bit of um, a gap that they sort of tried to fill in expositionally because apparently this this one takes place about six months later after the events in the original one in Zion time. And so we get all of this sort of backfill of this like mouse-like character kid who Neo saved him. And so he, this kid looks up to him so much, but it's all told as if we should already know about it, but it's the first time we're sort of hearing about it. And he's also so similar looking to the original mousy character in the first one that it's a little confusing, I think. Yeah. And since it's a half of a movie, we get a set with the mouse character, but there's no real payoff. Like, right. What's what's his character supposed to even do? He carries some bags in this one. OK, what 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 happens? I mean, obviously, we have to watch revolutions and then he does his thing. But if you're just watching this as a complete movie, it's it's really it feels incomplete. Right. Yeah. And that, I think that was a big uh, controversy with the ending, that cliffhanger ending. Like a lot of people were disappointed because I didn't pay to watch half a movie. I paid to watch a whole movie, even if it's going to be Snyder Cut length. You know, the first movie, it's a complete story. I mean, you could end it right there and it sure leaves the, the door cracked for sequels, but you have the full story. And then this one, right. you're just kind of getting into it. And then, oh, you got to wait six months, at least, you know, back yeah. in the ancient, ancient days. Right. But uh, anyway, should we, should we bring Pat in for his take on your take and my take? What's your take, Pat? Well, I think like one of the, biggest reasons at least according to mark passio and i'll probably be relying on him a lot because this is one of my favorite presentations by him but i love the matrix i just love it um but he says people didn't like the second movie because the first movie addresses what is the matrix the second movie addresses why are we in the matrix and the third movie addresses how to get out of the matrix and people are interested in the first question but they're not interested in the second and third questions because there's some like inconvenient truths there I can relate. And, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I They were largely forgettable for me. You know, like I was six years old in 1999 when The Matrix came out. And I remember that the first DVD that we ever bought with our new DVD player was The Matrix. And I watched the shit out of that. But I didn't watch the second or third ones much at all. Maybe one or two times. Yep. That's about my experience, too. Yeah. I, the first movie is so good. It's such a complete story. And then the second one and third one or yeah they're more of the story and they kind of finish it off but i it, it's like maybe where, sorry where, where do you go, go from the first movie you know it's it's like um, i don't think they i don't think they set it up to be i mean yeah they leave it open-ended yeah but you almost don't need sequels it almost felt like joel silver was like we need to make more money yeah and, okay come up with something well, it's, it's like uh, it's like a good horror film, you know, a really good horror film doesn't show the monster very much except once. And in the Matrix, it's almost like, well, the, the whole Zion and everything about the one and Neo is almost better if you have to imagine it yourself. Because Absolutely. whatever, whatever they're going to portray is going to be lackluster because it's not as good as what you imagine it to be. One hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. Now to take off on your your Passio, where he's saying the second movie is the why we're in the Matrix, right? Mm -hmm. 
it seems as if now I, I, I haven't seen this in a long time, but uh, they do make a big point about choice versus control. And they bring it up in, in a couple of different ways in this movie. Not only um, like Neo's making choices or is he being controlled? Is Neo a control himself? Is Zion a control? Is the world, the real world that we're seeing in this actually also in the matrix? Is all of this a steam right. release valve? Because you know, when the Sentinels are about to attack, attack them and Neo can stop them, in the real world, that's a sign that perhaps we're still in the matrix. Right. Yeah. I didn't right. It, yeah either either we're still in the matrix or Neo is getting even more powerful and hence even more boring. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whoa. <laughs> well, it's like it's very reminiscent of 1984. I mean, it, it really kind of feels like it harkens back to that where that's the ultimate like deflationary thing that just deflates you because it's like you know, you, you get interested in the resistance, but then you realize the resistance is just controlled opposition. And, and that's what it is with what uh, Goldstein. Um, I can think of so many other things. I mean, that, that so many, so many, I mean, help me out here. If you remember any dystopian films where it turns out the resistance is actually just an arm of the state. Yeah, I'm no help. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I can't. My brain doesn't work, but other, I believe you. Yes. Right. Well, in this one, we're introduced uh, to the idea of the Oracle being a control mechanism. And then we're introduced to the architect being the father of the Matrix, if, if she's the mother of the Matrix. And they're both coming up with ways of control. And in fact, I think the architect in his convoluted ergo proctor poop speech sort of says that Neo himself is a form of control. And this is the sixth time that he's come through. And while he does do things a little bit differently each time, because there is sort of an element of free will or an element of choice that, that is possible, that perhaps Neo is, is not human after all. He is perhaps a sentient AI like program similar to a Smith is in this character in this uh, in this movie. Right, which leads credence to the idea that the real world is actually still the matrix. I never considered that possibility. <laughs> Right. Well, you remember in the first one, we yeah. talked about how entire crops were lost because there was this utopian society and people were rejecting it with their minds. And so they had to have this uh, struggling planet, you know, this difficult life that people would accept because if it was too good, they wouldn't believe it. So maybe that's what the Zion being de destroyed five or six times is a Zion within the matrix. So it's it, everyone's still plugged in, but they think they're getting unplugged and they think they're fighting uh, the, the sentinels and, and defeating the machines. And really we're just all plugged in the entire time. We're just all in the pods. Th this makes me think about that South park episode where they're all just drinking Jameson. I don't know if you've seen that one. <laughs> it's like Stan discovers this whole group of like matrix type people. But when they plug you into the matrix, they really just bring down a huge bottle of Jameson and it gets plugged into your mouth and you just chug it. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I have yeah. not well, seen that one. It, it's it's about the illusion of control is what it is. And like I so I think that's like why we're in the matrix is because we need that illusion of control in order for for us to accept the, you know, the bars of the prison cell we're in. Okay. So not just the illusion of choice, but also the illusion of control. Sorry, the illusion of choice. You're right. Sorry. 
I mean, I could see the illusion of control being a thing too. Like, cause then those who think that they can see those who think they've taken the red pill. Yeah. Think that there is a control that they are overcoming and defeating. Yeah. And you, and you need that kind of resistance. Why would you need that kind of resistance though? If I'm like, if, if you're in the mind of the Merovingian and the, the ones who benefit from the control system, why would you need to constantly be, cre is it, what is the purpose of the release valve? Well, if, if we believe the story from the original matrix where they say that the mines rejected it and then crops were lost, that meant that the, the humans in the pods died. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps the control it's necessary to keep the humans alive because they think that there's this struggle that they're involved in and there's and they got to give in that. and they have to have, yeah, they have purpose. They have uh, the ability to win or at least the perceived chance to win. You feel more important that way. You have some successes. You have some losses, but you have the chance of success and your, your choices seem to matter. It's a huge, huge psychological boon for sure. I don't know if you didn't necessarily die otherwise because we don't have that, that ability to change that the real world like that. But maybe, maybe, maybe communism does. I don't know. I don't know. It's like Corbett had that that documentary about the rat experiment, the human rat experiment, uh, where they put the rats, the rat utopia, where if everything, what was it, the that if everything was limitless, are you familiar right. with this experiment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They, he made a giant rat mansion, and they grew, they they reproduced, but they stopped at some point. Like they did, they wouldn't fill up all the space and eat all the food. They just kind of stopped and they got lazy and they stopped having sex and they didn't even fight with each other. Really? They didn't compete for anything. They just kind of quit being rats. Yeah. And in, in, in Corbett's documentary or his piece on it, he talked about how the, the guy who designed the experiment, it was, it was always about more than just rats. And he, he has this really like weird thing in his paper that he eventually wrote about it, about how it's really about controlling the human race. Uh, it's pretty deep. Maybe I'll, I'll send a link so we can talk, uh, put it in the show notes. I'll yeah, maybe we're, we're seeing the fruits of that research, uh, being deployed now. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, some of the notes that I have, if, if we're ready to move on to a couple of different things here are just quotes that uh, Morpheus said that I thought were really interesting. And, and I identified with him in a lot of ways. So he has so much faith in that he has the one true kind of concept or, or philosophy or the, the prophecy. And I liken this to how we all adopt a common, you know, anarchist, capitalist, libertarian, non-aggression principle philosophy. And that is, the retort to not everyone believes as you do. Well, my beliefs do not require that they do. Unlike the statist mind, which does require that you also go along with their edicts. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good quote. I, I wrote that one down myself. It's very much. When you have certainty and understanding, you're not necessarily going to take some dumbass criticism from some rando and have it shock your and break your worldview. Uh, it's, it's a complete worldview that, uh, and to your point, their belief systems. Yeah. They, they, you have to go along with all this crap. 
all this crap and it's constantly changing. Yeah. And if you and don't like it, that, that hive mind, <laughs> if you don't like it, leave. Well, so, so just by being in a geographic area, you're, you're basically submitting to anything and everything that they can conceive of even going forward. And what if it's worldwide? Like it is now. Yeah. Where do you go? You can like it, leave. Yeah. Uh, Pat, you got any comments on this before I move on to my next present day yeah. relevant quote? I kind of likened it to so the struggle between Morpheus and this other commander guy from from Zion really reminded me of kind of what's going on with the Mises Caucus and uh, Dave Smith is that you know we're we're both kind of members of Zion for lack of a better term, um, but. Morpheus, if I can compare Dave Smith to Morpheus, has this idea that, you know, we have to have faith in the message and faith in, um, you know, not not going about the, the pragmatic kind of thing, which is what this commander guy is talking about. He's like, there's machines headed to the city right now and we need to do things to stop them. And Morpheus is like, well, it's about more than that. It's about Neo. It's about the message. It's about, you know, waking people up. And uh, I think that's directly re relevant, you know, to what's going on what has gone on with the struggle in the libertarian movement between the blue pilled libertarians and, and people who are, you know, super principled. Yeah, I agree with that. That's, that's a really good point. I think that the reason that Ron Paul was so popular and, and the movement sparked behind him was because he was so on message, uh, you know, for the most part, there's a couple of things I'd nitpick with, but he had a sort of appease to the constitutionalist crowd and, and Republicans, the, the more hardcore uh, kindred spirits, I would say to some of our, uh, at least free market um, leanings. But there is a case for some prag pragmatism, I think, you know, on a local level or in a defensive capacity, uh, making change where you can. Um, I think Hans Hermann Hoppe had a, had a paper and a, and a speech about what must be done. And it's all about getting active locally to make your, uh, the things that affect you more directly um, lean towards more, more freedom. But I think Dave's point is even, uh, probably more powerful. And that is if you have the platform and they're basically giving you a platform when you're uh, looking at a national race, that's where you can get the message out. And that's what needs to be pure enough to where people can hear it and be drawn to it. And if you're going to just kowtow and, and acquiesce uh, every step along the way and, and just kind of try to meet in the middle or be, you know, like the Gary Johnson style, like, oh, well, we're fiscally conservative, but socially liberal or even the Rand Paul thing where, you know, he, he just tried to be like sort of maverick, sort of radical, but not quite, you know, he tried to, he tried to meet in the middle a little bit too much. And I think that those just become milk toast, watered down messages that don't inspire people. I mean, who's going to go to the ramparts for 3% lower taxes. You know, I think that was a Murray Rothbard quote, you know, he's like, <laughs> we need to, you know, actually inspire people with like a real goal and a real vision that people are going to be willing to, to work for and, and, and take pride in that, uh, sort of like, you know, we were talking about how it can be a control, uh, but, you know, having, having a goal and having a drive to, to, uh, work towards something I think is a very powerful thing. And when you don't have a, a, a philosophically grounded message, you lose that. Yeah. You, you end up trying to please everybody and end up appealing to nobody. Right, which is pretty pretty useless. All right, well, I have my next quote that I want to bring up. And this one, man, I thought this applied perfectly to today. They're having that same kind of uh, discussion. It's Morpheus and the, the council and that, uh, what's the guy's name, Maddox, maybe? The, the commander guy who wants the extra two ships to defend against the alien or the Sentinel invasion. 
Their argument is, we don't want a panic. So we're not going to tell people the truth or the whole truth. You know, we're going to tell them a little bit. We're going to be like, oh, yeah, there's some stuff that might be happening, but, you know, don't tell them too much. And Morpheus is like, no, give them the truth. Let them decide for themselves and they won't panic. This is almost like they could have played this a year ago. You know, where I think Fauci even admitted, well, the reason we originally didn't uh, advocate for masks was because we wanted to save them for the healthcare workers. So we lied about not needing them so that they wouldn't be all bought up and so they'd still be available for people. And while that may have been noble at the time, at least in, in intention, in practice, they're lying through their teeth. And I think that that if if they should have any role at all, it should be to impartially and objectively give you the information so you can make your own risk assessment and make your own decisions on what you are going to do uh, for yourself and for your loved ones. And I think that that would have gone a very much longer way in making uh, this situation uh, have been handled so much better. Um, when we were on with Bob Murphy talking about They Live last fall, he made the point that if you let people make their choices, then you're not going to be corralling everybody into this one size fits all thing. So like all the mom and pop shops got shut down and everyone's now funneled into the uh, the big box store. So now you have concentrations of people trying to buy things and it gives you the exact opposite situation of what you would want if you're trying to maintain distancing. Whereas if you let the businesses remain open and advertise what level of regulations or, or requirements are necessary, then consumers could choose, hey, I'm comfortable with this level of risk, so I'll go here. And you, Robert, you might have been comfortable with even more risk. So you go over here where they're just raw dog in life with their faces. You know, and then then uh, some of the oldsters would be like wearing the, you know, 17 masks and the glasses, you know, because because it can get in your eyes, apparently. At least that's what he was saying last July. Um, but then there would be a place for them that would cater to that, you know. And so by eliminating those choices, we not only got the got the opposite effect of what they were trying to get, but we also lost valuable information because then we would have been able to see, okay, what's it like when you do this? What's it like when you do that? What con what kinds of solutions are going to come up and spring forth spontaneously as people are trying to deal with this to satisfy consumers who now have an, uh, 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 an awareness of some greater risk? You know, and, and at, initially nobody knew what the scale of that risk was. And uh, my point back then was, well, even if it's the most deadly thing in the world, you want freedom to be able to deal with it. Yeah, and it's about it's about respect and treating people like adults or like children. You give the people the, the the most complete information you have, and they will probably act better than if you give them some small hint of information, and then their their minds are left to run wild, seeking out all sorts of different kinds of information, and who knows what they're thinking. Yeah, buddy. Sorry, sorry, I pulled you up, Pat. While while Robert was talking, I was trying to grab your links so I could put them on our show notes page. But uh, I thought anyway. I made it a little easy for you. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So anyway, I thought that was a, a really good quote from uh, from Morpheus, and I think that you know he was he was vindicated in this. He told them the truth, and he got them inspired against a common enemy, and he got them fired up to defend Zion. And I think that's what you want. You know, you want people to be able to make the decision uh, for themselves. I mean, could you imagine if if they had gone that other dude's route? 
You know, the people would have just been like, oh, nothing's wrong. Okay. Life is, yeah, you know, until, going on. Until and, it's too late, probably. Yeah, until the Sentinels are, are beating on the door, you know, and nobody's prepared for shit and nobody's like, I don't know, like made peace with it or, or been like, okay, you know, they've come to terms with it. Like, okay, we've got 72 hours before this thing happens and you go through all those, you know, mental processes, the stages of grief or whatever, and then you have resolve to, to deal with it. But, you know, if, if they just lie to you to, to appease you and just keep you docile and you, and then you're surprised with it, then what's your reaction going to be then? You know, you haven't processed any of this information. You haven't made any plans whatsoever. You don't know if you're, you know, in a position to do the thing that you think you, had, had you been given the time to actually prepare that you would have done differently, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's centralized, you know, thinking like he knows better than all these other people. He's not soliciting ideas from this vast number of people that might have a really good idea about how to help, but he wants to control information. He wants to not let them know. So he doesn't get that help. It, I mean, you know, they're operating under a very short time frame anyway, but you know, when it's all hands on deck time, you treat people like adults and you get help from wherever you can. You know, you give everybody the information and you never know where some genius idea is going to come from. Right. And and while I will lend some some plausibility to his argument, we hear it all the time uh, and they even make mention of it is, you know, hey, we're not. We're not as well versed in defending the city as you are, so we will, you know, listen to your arguments and adhere to your advice. But he wanted it to be only his decision. You know, he wanted that autocratic authority of, hey, I'm the expert here. And so I should be the one calling the shots. And, and of course, <laughs> we, we see what, what that's been doing in present day as well. Do we think that given the opportunity <clears throat> Morpheus would have, if Morpheus would have had it his way, would he have decided to defend the city at all? Or would he have put 100% of all the efforts into Neo's mission? Um, I think that Morpheus was probably okay with just having some resources devoted to his mission. Two or three ships, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and really, that's almost a marginal utility argument because to him, those two or three ships are vitally important to his belief in the prophecy, whereas for Maddox, or whatever the guy's name is, it's two or three more ships out of, I don't know, dozens? I don't even know how many they have. But each additional ship to him, while he is claiming it has a lot of value to him, it's really, you know, just a couple more than a bunch that he already has. Indeed. You got any more quotes from Morpheus, Daniel? Uh, well, or there's another quote when he's making his speech to all the people. He says, we must shed our fear of it because we are still here. And I think we could use some of that uh, for the for the population these days as well. We need to shed our fear of the the propaganda porn that is being spilled out upon the airwaves and the websites. Uh, <laughs> there are so many holes in their arguments these days and in their data. Uh, Tom Woods had an email today where he has the chart compared for hospitalization rates between the 25 most restrictive states and the 25 least restrictive states. And the two lines are virtually mirror images of each other. Like they're like <laughs> the same, you know, like they're, they're hardly different at all. 
That's like uh, day 390 something to slow the spread and only 99.998 of us remain. Right, right. Yeah. Like writing yeah, my apocalypse journal. <laughs> yeah, if someone were to write uh, an apocalyptic novel based on today, I don't, I don't know if anybody would read it. <laughs> I wouldn't. Yeah, it's so bizarre. But anyway, we, we, uh, we had an example here where the guy who delivers our monthly meat box, we have uh, the butcher box thing. Nice. And I've been marking time with his arrivals because I've lost all concept of time since the 15 days or whatever to, to flatten the curve. So anyway, it seems like he was just here and then he's back again. And, and that's been going on for months. Well, anyway, he's always been wearing a mask. And sometimes I see him driving through the neighborhood, making deliveries, wearing a mask by himself, by himself, not today. No mask today. And so when he approached, I was like, oh, man, it's so good to see your face. And we started talking and he's like, man, yeah, I'm just so over it. And and uh, he said that he had gotten the vaccine. I'm like, OK, you know, that's cool if that's what you really wanted for me. Not not for me. I I, I don't like the lack, the lack of liability for them. I don't like the, uh, you know, that they're saying it's totally safe and 95 percent effective. And I've seen some of the numbers behind that and they're fucking lying. So um but we started talking about the these curves I was just mentioning and how, you know, if you're going to argue for this massive imposition on people's lives, locking them down, forcing masks, mandates, shutting down businesses, destroying lives. We're seeing all of these collateral damage coming from this with depression, suicides, drug overdoses, missed cancer screenings, heart disease, people dying of heart attacks because they're afraid to go to the hospital and all of those things, all of those are the damage caused that would not have occurred had they not forced these lockdowns, you better damn well see a big, significant difference between those areas that had these restrictions and those that did not. And the fact that there is hardly any difference at all shows you that it was all for nothing. All it is is causing harm. So it's not like how they played in their heads that, oh, well, if we didn't do this, then there would have been even more deaths than the 600,000 or whatever number they, they're throwing out these days. You know what the average age is of people who died with coronavirus? It's the average age of death in, at all. 80. Higher. Yeah, 80. <laughs> so, you know, people die. That happens. Car accidents, cancer, heart disease, accidents. You know, you name it. People die all the time. Old age. Um, you're not going to eliminate death. I remember when Cuomo was doing his Emmy-winning uh, daily speeches. He's like, the virus is death. We're fighting death. Well, I mean, yep. he was a, he had some inside info on that because he was <laughs> putting the putting the virus right into the most vulnerable population. But anyway, but but yeah, he's obviously a fear monger. He's he's essentially equating the risk of dying from Corona to be death for anybody. Right. If you get it, you're dead when it's you get it. And ninety nine point nine eight percent of you are not going to die. Yep. And, you know, and it's it's been a real trick to go from 15 days to flatten the curve because we're all going to get it eventually, right? I mean, we're just trying to not overwhelm the healthcare system to, well, we got to go until there's new cases. Right, yeah, that was the original argument is that, never get sick. yeah, we, we just need to not overwhelm the hospitals and the resources. So let's flatten it so we have the same amount of cases or whatever, but we have the resources over the time horizon to be able to manage it without overextending those available resources. That was the original argument. Now, have they changed their minds and flip-flopped like a hundred times since then? Yes, they have. So I, you know, I, I don't know if they would still make that argument or not, but 
it's been uh, over a year now. Anyway, we should probably talk about this movie. Well, no, let's not talk about the movie because you got me fired up now, Daniel. All right. So not only that, but they've also done a little sleight of hand with the idea that we're not going to get through this to the other side without a vaccine. Oh, yeah. As if human beings for our entire history haven't been dealing with diseases and getting through them without vaccines. Now this whole new COVID-19 is so scary and whatever, we have to have a vaccine or else we just can't go back to normal life because fear. And it's, uh, it's a real, it's a real mind fuck. It's, it's just absolutely just piling on the fear. We must shed our fear of it. We are still here. We're still here and human beings are still here. We've been here. We've dealt with these things in the past. And we haven't freaked out like a bunch of little nanny bitches. All right, so here's here a related is the mind killer. That's right. That's here is the mind right. killer. All right, here's Wait, a here's that... a related here's a related quote that maybe explains uh, where some of this comes from. What do all men with power want? More power. More power. That's right. Okay, someone said. Okay, Cuomo said that we're fighting against death, but you know who's death? Agent Smith. So, that's the perfect segue. Come on. So there's Agent a lot Smith of symbolism. Is is that what you're saying? Agent Smith is the Reaper? Death. Yeah. This is, he represents the death of compassion, the, the cremation of care. So I'm going to take this down the conspiracy rabbit hole. Are you ready for this? Nice. Let's do it. There's, Come there's on. Light so the much symbology behind this fucking movie. So let's... I'll, you want to pull up the main my, screen? What's that? You want me to pull up your screen here? Yeah, I got you. I got you, fam. All right, adding to the stream now. So this is the symbology behind the movie, basically, that the Neo and Morpheus and Trinity represent the three parts of the human consciousness, basically, that uh, Trinity is the most important, actually, character in the whole trilogy, I think, is that she represents, you know, our our compassion and love and heart and care and spirit. And, uh, you know, that's basically, Passio talks about how, in the second movie, is about how we are always saving Trinity because at the beginning of every Matrix movie, Trinity is in grave peril, and um, you know Morpheus is asleep. And Morpheus, rep- or excuse me, Neo is asleep in every in the beginning of every movie, and he represents the common man, our will, our courage, our conscience, and our freedom in our action. And so, basically, the whole series is about Neo saving Trinity, which is. Trinity is what's needed to overcome the control system. And um, Morpheus is the one who wakes Neo up. So um, they connect through Trinity, who's the heart. And, uh, you know, Morpheus wakes up Neo. And that's where we get all this stuff. So um, pretty interesting stuff. Like, I didn't think about it until it's true, right? That Trinity is, is in grave mortal danger at the beginning of every film. I can't think of the third movie. What's What peril is she in? Well, Neo's in a coma, and the dude who's been taken over by Agent Smith uh, threatens him early on in the, in the third film, if I recall. I haven't seen it yet, but we will see it because we're talking about it next week with Mike C. of Mechanical Dream Revolution. Who's been adding awesome comments, by the way. Well, he's an awesome guy. Makes awesome oh, music, yeah. too. So, um, you know, here's some more slides from Mark Passio's thing about Neo being our neocortex and our... Uh, being the new man, which I thought was a communist concept, wasn't it? But it's all kind of about ascending to a new reality, or uh, excuse me, to a new like plane of being because 
you know, that's how we're going to ascend to get beyond the matrix, kind of like becoming anarchistic beings is, is ascending beyond this slave planet system that we live in right now. So prison planet, prison prison planet. planet. I'll just go through these quick. So the most powerful world is no. And that's what Neo says at the end of the first movie. So learning to say no to this. Uh, we already talked about a lot of this, but yeah. So basically this is what agent Smith does is I wrote an article on Substack called defiling the sacred feminine. And, um, can you see that on the screen right now? Substack. Yeah. The words are small, but I'm sure they're really good. They are very good. Um, but basically I tied it into Bohemian Grove, man. We're going to go deep back to the OG Alex Jones shit. Bohemian Grove, they okay. perform that ritual called the cremation of care. And I think it's all about killing Trinity, basically, because if Trinity represents, you know, our compassion, our care, that that ritual, the cremation of care is all about killing that part of us, which allows us to escape the matrix. And that's what the elites allegedly do at Bohemian Grove. And uh, I just thought that was really interesting. But that's what Agent Smith does throughout the second movie is that he uh, goes to the heart. He It's very symbolic that he stabs people in the heart with his hand and he turns their hearts black. Uh, basically, he's he's taking the life out of them, killing care. Doesn't he turn so, them into into another clone of him? Into killers, yeah. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Now, this Mark Passio presentation it's something like four hours long right it's two. Oh, just two okay yeah well i will i'll put that on our show notes page as well i remember watching it gosh probably like 10 years ago uh and it being rather interesting what what do you guys think about the merovingian because that's another part of this whole conspiracy kind of uh dark thing because the merovingian bloodline is what lots of like christians and fundamentalists they think that the Merovingian bloodline will come, will birth the Antichrist. And it's interesting that on something like The Matrix Reloaded, some huge blockbuster major film directly names a character, the Merovingian, when the Merovingian bloodline is supposed to be one of the bloodlines that produces like the ruling class in society, kind of like the New World Order stuff. Is that what it is? I always thought the Merovingian was the bloodline of Christ. See, that's... The, the it's the the dark occult bloodline is uh, um i was reading an article earlier but right like before we went on about how you know like christiany kind of doomsday conspiracy theorists think that the da vinci code was part of this huge pr campaign to make people think the merovingians are descended of christ but really they're the dark occultists who are behind like the large like the most evil bloodlines like the Rothschilds are part of the Merovingian bloodline. So I don't know. How deep do you want to go on this shit? I mean, I have no idea about any of this crap, but I'm loving it. So keep going. (laughs) Well, I essentially the Merovingian, he represents um, the, those in the power structure who benefit the most from the matrix system is what he does. Um, now, I don't know exactly the point that Mark Passio was getting at in this slide, but it looks really fancy. Well, that's basically the point that the Merovingian is making in this because Neo and Morpheus and Trinity come and they're trying to get the key maker from him and he sort of stonewalls them and sort of toys with them, I think, but then is betrayed by 
his wife, Persephone, because he was unfaithful to her. And Passio has a whole thing about Persephone and something about like Greek mythology and stuff. And it, it makes total awesome sense, but I just can't remember what it is. Um, but she, she's important for sure. I did, did think you... that was a little bit weird that she wanted yeah. a kiss from Neo as if he was kissing Trinity. There was, there was some high artistic symbology behind that. Okay. Yeah, Persephone is the wife of Hades, the god right. of the underworld. So I don't know how that plays in. So, but is that is that to tell us that perhaps the Merovingian in this story is is a Hades character? Yeah, yeah. It seems like it. Yeah. And okay. he's speaking French, which is very telling. Because the Merovingian bloodline descends from the Franks, from the Frankish kings. Yeah, I literally, I, I just made that connection. Interesting. Yeah. Let's see. I don't think I don't have any other slides for us. That's it. It's done. Okay. Wow. I'm going to okay. pull that down then. Pull it. All right. So, such a loss of life. So, this, this has been interesting. Um, now, how does this tie back to the movie? Because, you know, most of us are here because of our disobedience our affinity for disobedience um what what do you take away from this movie like does this help with the entire story or do you do you robert do you still feel like the first movie is the only real movie worth watching and that that's the complete story well for me it's i mean i love the original matrix it's you can be taken apart on so many levels and uh, yeah, it, it, it has a real rebellious, even if it's just a dumb teenager rebellion, right? Like, I mean, I'm sure like every Antifa member loves the Matrix just as much as I do. Uh, the, this movie, if they were exploring some more ideas, but yeah, it's definitely unnecessary. Uh, it's not like it completes anything that, you know that the first movie was lacking anything so yeah i i don't even really know what to say here uh, it's it's more fun deeper hole talk but it's like for those that want to go deeper you can do that but for the vast majority of us the matrix is enough i guess right That's now before we uh, go to Pat, I wanted to also ask you, Robert, you said that you liked the action sequences in this one, but I found them to look pretty dated CGI style in a lot of ways. And I think because they found that they couldn't do the same kind of manual wire work and rigging that they were doing with the cameras uh, to get the, the matrix, you know, like 3D motion kind of thing that they were doing in the original. So they did a computer program that sort of developed to be able to do this. And I think it looks almost video game ish, especially the Smith fight. And whenever Neo is like flying around, um, it just looks a little plasticky. It looks a little like he's a toy or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate, but they were, I mean, these movies cost like a bajillion dollars at the time and they were developing all kinds of fantastic technology. And that's just, 
that's the the nature of the game when you rely too much on CGI. It's eventually going to look dated. Like the you know the practical stuff on the freeway looks fantastic, but then they go to the the two semis smashing into each other and then the buckling and the warping and the whatever, and then that looks like more like a PS2 graphic. It's really it's unfortunate. It really is unfortunate. Um yeah, when uh the bullet effects, all the CGI, they made it look as good as they possibly could at the time. And it just looks poor because of all the amazing advancements we've done. All the amazing advancements in technology that have created look poor. So, right. And, and what they were doing at the time was probably advancing things beyond what they were before that. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's it cuts like a knife. It, it looks so good at the time, and then it ages poorly. It, but you know, they got their money, and and I still had a great time with it. Uh, the the bad graphics don't really, you know, it doesn't it doesn't take away too much of my enjoyment. But you're right, you're you're right. It does look bad, objectively, especially for somebody that is watching this movie for the first time. If you're watching it for the first time in 2021. And you're like, what's the big deal about this movie? I've heard so much people talk about it all the time. Let me look at it. And you're like, really? This doesn't, this looks like that's shit. That's <laughs> shit on the screen. I don't know. What's the deal? Yeah. I mean, the it's first one's still... but the, like the ghost effects, the, the twins, the, when they transform into their hollow selves, uh, you know, it's, it's not that great. You mean the or, Ghostbusters effect? Yeah. It's just not, it's not up to today's standards. And why would it be? But I mean, We'll see what we get with the with the remake here or whatever it is they're doing. I'm sure it'll look amazing. It'll look photorealistic for our today's eyeballs. But in 20, 30 years, will it look as bad again? Yeah, probably. Yeah, fortunately, my eyes are deteriorating already. So by then, I mean, it'll just be a smudgy blur and I won't be able to tell the difference anyway. That's right. Your cataracts will be covering <laughs> everything and everything will be dark. <laughs> All right. So, Pat, do you have any final points? We're going to need to start winding this one down uh, already. Yeah, I kind of think, um, you know, from from the perspective of com completing the philosophy, movies two and three are necessary. But from a storytelling standpoint, I think you could have better ended it with just the one. But knowing how much secret symbology is behind this, and you'd really have to watch that Passio presentation to really start to appreciate it because there's so much more hidden gem stuff in there um yeah i you know they everyone all the actors had to read uh simulcra simulcra and simulation and a whole bunch of philo philosophy before they even read the script so i i think i'll cite wikipedia on that but i really i still really like the movie i think that reloaded aged better like a when I was a kid and watching Reloaded, it just wasn't nearly as good. And I think there's several reasons behind that. But I, I would um, I would say it's a little better upon rewatching, but it's it's not great. So if I was to give the original Matrix like a 9.7, I would give this one maybe like a 7.5 out of 10. Oh, okay, interesting. All right. So we're already yeah. in Final Summary Review. That's, that's great. And I, I yeah. was curious what your score was for the original. So thank you for that. And I think that... that Robert, you were having a similar thought where re-watching this, the movie is actually better than you remember, despite the graphics not being as good as they once were. 
So right. I'm sure you like flip flopped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the original Matrix, you were still high on the original Matrix. You still had massive anticipation. Half of it's, you know, half of how much you're going to enjoy a film is how much do you anticipate it being good or how, how good do you anticipate it being? So after the Matrix, you're like, well, the next movie is going to be even better. And of course, they created a masterpiece. So the only way the direction they could go was down. But I didn't know that at the time. At the time, I'm like, these guys are geniuses. They've got this plan. They're going to make this this whole big story that's going to be incredible. And then instead, we got what we got. Now, like Pat said, you come back to it, at least I did, and I'm like, you know, it really wasn't that bad. There's still a lot to enjoy. There's there's still some good philosophy. There's a whole lot of great action. They did ramp up the action. You can't argue with that. They ramped it up. And even though the tension is down, I, I think any time where you remove death for, as a possibility for one of the main characters, you remove, you deflate that tension balloon. And, you know, Neo gets resurrected at the end of the first Matrix. Uh, Trinity gets resurrected at the end of this movie. You know, it, it just, Neo's too powerful for me. Neo's just too powerful. But... The, the movie itself is still still a lot of fun. I'm actually looking forward to watch Revolutions, although I remember Revolutions being my least favorite. And we'll see. I, isn't it a bit long? And there's a whole lot going on in like the real world that just isn't super great. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I, I don't remember a lot of it. And what I do remember wasn't good. So I remember Neo being carried off dead by machines into a, a white light. And anyway, there's there's flashes of stuff, but uh, it's not as memorable as that first Matrix, of course. So right. yeah, for Pat's score, I gave the original Matrix nine point nine out of ten, and I am gonna give this like a seven point two. It's still it's good, it's still recommended, but it's not a masterpiece that the, the original was for sure. Not for me. All right, very good. Well, I I agree with both of you guys in that. When I rewatched this this most recent time, I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would for just from my old uh, recollection of it not being that great. But you're right. When you revisit it, it is actually pretty good. Granted, it does look a little bit dated. Um, and in some ways, I sort of wish that I had watched Revolutions again before we had our discussion tonight. But then I probably would have had an even more confused mind on what was going on and, and what, what thing happened in what movie. So I, I I think we probably did the best we could as far as watching the one movie talking about it. And then next week when Mike C comes, we'll do uh, revolutions and just focus on that movie and a little bit of the original, I think, because uh, Mike's been telling us a lot of interesting stuff in some of the pre-show content. He, he hopped on with us um, before we did the, the original matrix episode two weeks ago and was telling us some interesting things. So that will be a fun conversation next week. But for this one, I'm going to go with a seven for matrix reloaded. And uh, uh, I think it's worth watching. And, I, I'm I'm not sure what uh, what to make of what they're doing coming out later this year. And so, uh, Pat, I, I wanted to get your take on what do you think they're working on? It, do you, do you have any readings in on this? I don't. The last thing I remember seeing about it was a picture of Keanu Reeves walking across the crosswalk with one of the Wachowski sisters. So I, I don't know exactly what they're planning. I don't know what direction they go in, but it, I don't know. It it has to be better than revo, revo, revolutions, revelations. 
what, what, what would you of, what would you like to see out of this this new project here, Pat? I, I don't know. I'd like to see something that has a good storyline, but something that challenges orthodox beliefs. Something like the first Matrix movie that is like a secret ninja bomb planted deep in people's psyche, like a, a Larkin Rose Candles in the Dark type thing that people don't know they're ingesting, but they're ingesting it regardless. Wouldn't and, that be uh, awesome? I, I, I think it, it only, yeah, it would only be good if it challenged, like in a true Matrix way, if it really challenged orthodox beliefs in a way that was cool, because that's that was the strength of the original Matrix movies. Yeah, absolutely. Giving you something to chew on in your brain and your eyeballs, and it's just cooler than anything you've seen before. That being said, it can't be any better than John Wick because I, I just, I love John Wick movies. Like they're just, they could make 20 of them. I think I've said this on the, on your show before they could make 20 fucking John Wick movies and I would love every single one of them just as much as the first one. So I don't know how you can pop that right now. I keep hearing about it. I got to watch John Wick. I haven't done it yet. And there's like three or four of them out now. It's awesome. Okay. Well, once I get first one, the first one was a lot of fun, but you know, he like, but avenging his dead dog or something like that. So, you know, you, you just, you can't take it too seriously. It's like, okay, I'm here to watch awesome, like neo-noir got, you know, action Kung Fu shoot 'em up films. It's not, you can't look too much into it. It's just, it is what it is. So he's basically Neo again. Basically. Yeah. Okay. He's, well, he's, uh, the Boba Yaga. He's the, what, what, uh, the boogeyman. He comes, he just, he's a mafia hitman, and he gets crossed and he just kills everything. Okay, well, I'll give that a watch. It's been there's gold coins. It. There's gold coins in it, so I don't know what you wouldn't like about it. <laughs> what? Oh man! Um, well, we're gonna anyway. have to have you back, Pat. Uh, you've been on, I think, almost a dozen times. Uh, Mike, Mike's been on about a dozen times too. So we're yeah. we're, we're going back to the well on that. But uh, yeah. uh, why don't you just remind everyone where they can find your podcast, and then we will uh, sign off and get into some Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, you guys. I really appreciate it. It's always a good time. I'm so glad that we've been friends for so long. It's really special. Um, So now that that shit's out of the way, uh, (laughs) libertyweekly.net is where you can find me. Uh, Also on the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org alongside other fine podcasts. So until next time. Until next time. All right. Well, next time we will be back with The Matrix Revolutions with Mike C. of Mechanical Dream Revolution. And uh, you guys can support the work we do here. Go to lastnerves.com slash Patreon. Get some of that Kathleen Turner Overdrive and pre-show bonus content. You can find the show notes and more for this at lastnerves.com slash 176. We will have all of Pat's prior appearances with us on the show and also links to the Libertarian Institute and also his uh, his show at libertyweekly.net. And uh, with that, we'll say goodnight from last night, everyone. We will see you guys next week. Peace out.